Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Welcome to a special episode in memory of Dr. Jerry Malenga. We recently learned that Dr. Malenga passed away just a few days ago, well before his time. So in his honor, this is a rebroadcast of our amazing discussion with him. And in this episode, we spend the bulk of our time talking about the field of orthobiologics, which is something he was incredibly passionate about and a pioneer in. We talked about the conundrum of evidence-based medicine, and we spent the back half talking about the foundation of rehabilitation and our parent field of PM&R and the paradigm of effective musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Malenga has been one of my most influential mentors. In fact, he's been a mentor to countless clinicians in the PM&R, sports medicine, and regenerative medicine community. What I always appreciated about him was his passion, his desire to continue learning, and always looking at an issue from the beginner's mind, despite being a giant in the field. I remember being a third year medical student and him wanting to learn more from me because of my unique background. I found that to be incredibly humbling because I knew what an established and brilliant physician he was. And the respect he gave me at that time taught me lessons and more importantly, created a bond that I think a lot of people share. It's one of the reasons why his passing is a loss that's devastating to the entire community. And this has been evident throughout all of social media over the past few days since his passing. And it really gave me an appreciation of how much he mattered to so many people. A quote comes to mind that I recently heard. And it goes, at every person dies twice. The first is their actual death, the physical passing. And the second is the last time their name is uttered. Because of the impact Dr. Malenga had in his time here and the legacy he left behind, both personally and professionally, fortunately, his name will be mentioned for a long, long time. Now, without further delay, please enjoy this special rebroadcast in memory of Dr. Jerry Malenga. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Medicine Redefined. Uh, Altamash and I are honored to have none other than Dr. Jerry Malenga here sitting with us. Dr. Malenga, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me join you. Awesome. So I'd love to just get right into it. Um, so I've heard about who you are um, in the last five years now as, I, as I'm on my PM&R journey. Um, but for the listeners out there, can you tell us who you are and what motivated you to kind of be where you are right now? Okay. I'll try to be brief on it because, you know, telling somebody who you are, you know, I was born here and I did this and stuff like that. So, um, so as a young boy, we'll go back. I really enjoyed sport. I enjoyed participating in sports. Um, I was not athletically gifted, but I really tried hard to participate in all different types of things, baseball, basketball, tennis, whatever I could do. Back then, it was playing in the backyard with your buddies and joining some leagues and teams and things like that. I also either was fortunate or unfortunate to suffer from a variety of orthopedic conditions, ranging from being born with a club foot to having Osgood slaughters to having stress fractures and things like that. Um, and so as I went into medicine um, and then uh, went through medical school, I tried to pick out a specialty. 
I had no idea about this field of physical medicine rehabilitation to late into my third year of residency when someone said, oh, there's this field called physical medicine rehabilitation. And he gave me a brochure and I said, wow, this is really super interesting. Um, I was not really interested in being a surgeon. I really didn't enjoy being in the OR. And I felt like this was a specialty where you could be involved and take care of athletes and and try to keep them from getting surgery, uh, I suppose. Uh, so I, I did my residency, and then I was fortunate enough to do uh, a fellowship at Mayo Clinic in sports medicine, which was fantastic. And I learned about sports, sports injury, the orthopedic sides of things. Um, then went into practice, um, stressing non-operative treatments of orthopedic conditions. Um, at that time, our training was pretty limited in getting things that was published in the orthopedic literature and maybe in physical therapy literature. Um, and so it was a bit biased towards certain things like using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines, corticosteroid injections, and that was pre-ultrasound guidance or ultrasound diagnosis. So we were reliant on x-rays and then maybe some MRI. Early on, I became very interested in uh, how to perform a good physical examination through residency and fellowship as well, and um, started understanding that physical examination was really not well respected and poorly performed and poorly understood. And that drove me to pursue it, publish on it, publish a couple of textbooks on it um, that I've gotten great feedback from, you know, students and residents and fellows, et cetera. Um, and then over this past decade, this whole area of quote unquote regenerative medicine or perhaps orthobiologics is the better term. PRP came out with this intriguing knowledge and then various types of cells that could induce a healing response. Uh, and so this area um, now over the past five to 10 years has blossomed with some really good basic science, which with a premise and a hope and a future of great benefit, but also it's got this dark side of people misusing the science, people taking advantage of patients, um, people making un, unscrupulous claims. Um, and so now we have a beautiful baby in a really terrible bathwater kind of tub. Um, and we really need to kind of move forward on that. And also we, we need to use those innovative treatments in conjunction with all the great basic things that we learn in PMNR or osteopathic medicine um, and even holistic medicine, such as uh, sleep, diet, exercise. And we can't just become myopic and say a stem cell, a PRP injection is going to solve all of these problems. Um, and so my goal is to try to push the science of this innovative area and blend. Uh, I once gave a presentation, um, maybe it was the Passover Legacy Award lecture or something, but it, it, it was called Blending the Best of the Past with the, with the Future, right? And so everything that's old is not necessarily great. Um, you listen to old timers and say, oh yeah, we used to do these great things. And, um, but everything that's new is also not in the best interest of the patient. Um, and so trying to find the best blend of the two is uh, what I'm hoping to try to achieve in my research, in my education, and even in these podcasts. I love that, Dr. Malanga. You know, it, it's funny, we always, in, in medicine, we, we talk about how medicine has to be your calling, right? And you can't do it for the wrong reasons. And for me, particularly, I, I share a very similar journey in terms of injuries and what I've experienced. 
sports medicine I knew was always my calling. It wasn't until my first year of PM&R and, and I consider myself lucky that I learned early on about it that you know the non-surgical approach really appealed to me again because I, I didn't think necessarily surgery was always the best approach. But then I was fortunate enough to work with you as a third year medical student and all the things that you're talking about, the quote unquote holistic approach, um, you know, I saw a physician practicing this way and, and that inspired me even more to go beyond. And so, so I consider myself very fortunate you know, just speaking on, on the topic of uh, orthobiologics, and that, that's kind of what we're going to dive deeper into today. And you alluded to that. You, you said that, you know, we recognize it at orthobiologics, but a lot of the uh, general population or even individuals will call it regenerative medicine. Now, I think it's really important for us to kind of lay the semantics out in front. And, and you've talked about this at conferences of why regenerative medicine isn't a good term. So I'd love to hear, you know, talk a little bit more about that now. And then also, when it comes to the cellular treatments, people talk about them being stem cells. And and we've kind of gotten away from that, particularly with Dr. Kaplan, who, who's recoined the term, if you will. So could you talk about why those terms aren't good? And then how should we be referring to them? And, and why is that important? Yeah, uh, a really great question. And, and some of it has to do with um, the misuse of terms. Um, I have my own podcast, as you guys know, called Malanga Talks. And one of my future podcasts will be on the topic of why words matter. And it's very important, the words that we use in everyday life, but in medicine in particular, and the misuse of terms and words in medicine is really scary to me. And so, um, so the term regenerative treatment or regenerative medicine isn't necessarily in and of itself a bad term. It's what happens with that wording that becomes a problem. So if we think about our day-to-day -day being, the human body, the human body regenerates all the time, right? We know that our GI tract will regenerate its in three to seven days. We know if you burn your skin, that tissue will regenerate in less than a week. We know that the mucosal cells in our mouth can regenerate within 48 to 72 hours. We know that actually the entire musculoskeletal, the entire skeletal system of our body is basically reformed every 260 days. We know that our red cells renew, our white cells renew. So this term regenerative is basically intrinsic to being a human being. Um, and so that's the good part. But when you promise somebody that you're going to do something and regenerate their tissue, then what you're offering is a false promise, right? Um, so I use the term orthobiologics uh, um, as a term that I think embraces the variety of things that can help stimulate healing using people's own tissues. So there is this area of biologics in medicine that has sort of been um, captured by the pharma world, right? And so when you talk about biologics, it's taking all these different um, uh, tissue factors and then manufacturing them in a, in a bottle or a pill and then a patient will take that and that will be helpful for a variety of rheumatologic disorders. And so the term biologic is a little limited. Orthobiologic, we say, because we're treating orthopedic conditions. But for me, the term orthobiologics is taking people's own tissues, doing something pretty simple to that, and then creating something that can have a healing effect on a patient. The term stem cell is really uh, misused, poorly used, um, and in fact has been denounced as a term we should use by the founder of, you know, or the initial um, 
the godfather of mesenchymal stem cells, Arnold Kaplan, right? He said, stop using that term. So if you want to call something a stem cell, you go to a lab and you take tissues and you, you look at surface markers, you identify the tissues and you say, yes, that is a stem cell. Whether that's necessary for most of the things that we're doing clinically, probably not. But if you're not going to do that, then don't call what you're doing a stem cell treatment. Now, there are tissues and things that are used that are clearly have no stem cells based upon somebody looking at it in a lab. So if you take amniotic fluid or amniotic tissue when it's put into a vial in a bottle, it has no stem cells. So somebody trying to tell you that I'm giving you stem cells is fraudulent. It's false advertising. Um, there's legalities related to that. Umbilical stem cell treatments. You sure, uh, when you go to the bedside and you harvest umbilical cord and you harvest the cells, there are true stem cells that have been cultured out and um, exist. But by the time it gets pulled, frozen, put in a bottle and sits on somebody's shelf, there are no live stem cells. So if you're going to say to somebody, I'm giving you stem cells, I guess if you could say that dead stem cells are giving somebody stem cells, um, you're only skirting around the truth a little bit. And then there's bone marrow treatments and adipose treatments, which when you break them down and if you look at it in the lab, will you can plate out stem cells, but you're not sure what you're delivering when you're giving that to a patient. So the more proper term is um, providing a cellular procedure. Um, I think that is on the mark with proper wording compliant with what the FDA would ask us to do. Um, and there's value what's, uh, uh, with what's in those cellular components. And it may not just be the mesenchymal stem cells or the medicinal signaling cells that have impact because we know in bone marrow, there's a variety of things in bone marrow, uh, a variety of cellular and non-cellular uh, things, uh, various proteins. Uh, interleukin-1 receptor antagonist protein that have profound effect on modulating inflammation and helping with tissue healing. Wow, Dr. Malenga, that was, a, that was a beautiful explanation. Honestly, it answered a lot of my follow-up questions that I was going to ask. And I think you gave a really nice definition of orthobiologics, why we shouldn't use the word stem cells. Um, and then, you know, I would love to go down each and every kind of um, in injection that we can do in each type of um procedure. But before we do that, can we get into the type of injuries that we're looking at when we use orthobiologics? You know, what are there specific joints that we use? Is it more knee? Is it shoulder? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this falls back to the uh, initial part of our discussion, meaning that we should do a lot of really good things short of doing anything that we would call an orthobiologic. So, and we know that most acute injuries will heal with good practical principles of, um, of stimulating a healing response. Now, what we classically have done sometimes interferes with tissue healing. So we prescribe non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. That is not going to be very helpful for tissue healing. And that has been demonstrated in multiple animal and human models, right? We know that corticosteroid injections, in particular for tendon issues is not going to be very helpful and in fact can be pretty harmful. So we shouldn't be doing that either. And in fact, even the use of a simple thing such as cold or cryotherapy, recent evidence would suggest or would question 
the quote unquote dogma of icing aggressively uh, for many tissue injuries and really intelligent exercise physiologists and holistic healers have now said, mm, maybe we should be a little careful even with things like, um, like icing or overly aggressive icing. There are other things that have been traditionally done in orthopedics, um, such as immobilization, casting. Um, we just recently did a podcast on high ankle sprains and talking about and regular ankle sprains and talking about the traditional method in the past of placing people in casts. And now we place them in a cast boot. So we don't have to, we don't have to use plaster or casting materials, but immobilization is not very good for most soft tissues. It's a harmful thing. And so we should immobilize fractures clearly. um, And then ligaments sometimes and tendons very rarely. So we need to be careful. And that immobilization period should be as, uh, whatever it takes, as as minimal as possible. So orthobiologics, the place for orthobiologics is when somebody gets stuck in their healing response. They had an injury, it's not getting better, they've tried all the proper things. Unfortunately, maybe some of them have been injected with a corticosteroid, which maybe blunted the response. And now they're left with a condition that just isn't getting better. That can range from chronic tendon problems, chronic ligament problems, and then chronic joint problems, which gets into the world of either a chondral injury, um, isolated, or more involvement of articular cartilage that we call osteoarthritis, that we now recognize as an inflammatory process related to maybe systemic inflammation in the body that we need to be aware of, um, a loss of good strength of the supporting muscular components, in particular the quadricep and the glutes. And so there are a variety of non-orthobiologic treatments that can stimulate a chronic condition to get better. Um, Sometimes it actually involves converting that chronic condition to something that appears to be more of an acute condition. And that's an Eastern medicine approach. So in Eastern medicine, they talk about the human body as having an energy flow, that we are vibrational, and that when there's a chronic area that's not healing, whether it's a stomach problem or an elbow or a a shoulder, it's because the key or the, the flow of energy has been blocked. And so in Eastern medicine, various things are done to open up that channel of healing and but also looking at the person holistically and systemically in ayurvedic medicine it's also looking at various things that can induce a more homeostasis healing environment um, looking at whether you're burning too hot or too cold or, or or various other things that i have a very immature understanding but a great appreciation for um, and then in Western medicine, we do a variety of things to stimulate healing, right? You could do cross uh, friction massage. You can do eccentric training. You can do um, a variety of things that are that wake up the body and try to get it to stimulate to heal. And short of orthobiologics, you can do things like needling techniques. And so we have the 10x device and we have just have a needling technique. And then there was the, you know, that once negatively looked upon, maybe more positively looked upon alternative method of prolotherapy, of inducing a 
a response in an area by using dextrose. Who would have thought that sugar would be good for you, right? I did a little blog or something on, I thought sugar wasn't good for you related to prolotherapy and that method. And then, um, then we have these other wonderful things that we have in our bodies that we can concentrate and uh, specifically inject that include platelets, most commonly for chronic tendinopathies. Um, really great evidence for lateral epicondylosis, for greater trochanteric insertional tendinopathies. Um, pretty good, but you know, some back and forth if you look at the current mainstream literature on uh, Achilles, uh, patella tendinopathy, and a little bit of a mixed bag for rotator cuff. And then again, if you need a higher stimulus, then you grab cells, either bone marrow and concentrate those, or adipose tissue uh, using compliant methods, uh, FDA compliant methods, FDA compliant devices that are not more than minimal ma manipulation, meaning you're not changing the characters, and then guiding them into an area as an adipose is nice because it can act as a soft tissue filler. So if you have a soft tissue defect, like a meniscal tear, like a tendon tear defect, like a rotator cuff tear, tremendous for that. It acts as a tissue filler and then has these bioactive cell components that can help with tissue healing, modulation of inflammation of the area and induce healing response. Well, so that, there's, a, there's a wide variety then, right? So we're talking about ligaments, uh, so uh, sprains, strains, also joint conditions, um, and then just looking at different joints as well in the body and kind of all over holistic approach. I love that. Um, but I just want to take a step back in terms of when you talk about acute versus chronic injury, is there a certain time frame, like a certain cutoff that we're saying, okay, now it's chronic or what do we exactly look at and how would patients know whether their injuries, you know, turn into a chronic injury? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not like everyone has a stopwatch and, you know, once your stopwatch hits, uh, you know, six weeks, two hours and 13 minutes. Now it's gone from a, a, acute to chronic, right? And we used to have these kind of silly definitions of like three months, more than three months, that's chronic. Uh, before that, it was like six months. And some of that had to do with low back pain and some of the literature regarding the lack of likelihood that you're gonna get better if you had three months and then six months of back pain and that most people get better in six to eight weeks after a back pain episode. But so uh, that, then a more thoughtful definition was any condition that uh, was failed to improve beyond the, what was felt to be the natural time frame of recovery from an injury, right? Uh, so if we look at most soft tissue injuries three to four weeks, six to eight weeks, I mean, they get better, right? Even fractures. Um, in a young person, it's amazing how quickly a young person can recover. But uh, usually six to eight weeks, fractures will recover. So you could say, in general, if you wanted to use a ballpark, that something that lingers, and then there's a, a bell-shaped curve, right? So for some people, it's four weeks. For some people, it's 10 weeks. Um, if you say that anything that uh, has a greater duration than the, uh, the time frame of expected recovery would, would start moving into chronic. I think that's fair. If you want to give that like another month, so if you say most things get better in two months, then that three months makes some sense. But I got to tell you, if you're in the middle of a season, right, and you're an NFL football player, and you tell that guy, uh, well, we're going to wait till he, you know, it's still cute and we're not going to use anything that's more felt to be chronic. I mean, 
the time frames really shrink down if you talk about different sports and different levels of those sports. So for an NFL athlete, if something is more than a week or two, that's a chronic thing. Got it. Learning something new every day. I love that. Um, okay. And then I just want to ask you about the ice. So, you know, a lot of people think ice is good because it's part of that rice model, right? The rest, ice, compression, elevate. So yep. why would it might not be as advantageous as we thought? And then when is it advantageous to use? Are there certain types of injuries where we should be thinking ice? Yeah. So I think, you know, it, it's gotten to be a little bit of an intellectual debate on the ice thing. But I think those that have questioned the dogma, I, I really like that. Um, and if you have, if you look up the definition of dogma, dogma at, at one point was felt like, well, this is what really smart people uh, say. So that's dogma. But if you look up the definition of dogma, it's um, uh, a firmly held belief without evidence. Right. So that's almost like faith, right? Like I believe in certain saints and I believe in certain gods and that shouldn't be scientific, right? But when I look at what goes on in medicine, which I always thought should be science-based, there's a ton of dogma in, in medicine, which then makes medicine more like a religion than a scientific study, right? Um, and I look at some of the things, even in the COVID type environment, where people make statements that are not really scientific. They're almost religious or opinion or belief based. And so we really should try to avoid that, I think, if, if at all possible. Um, so, um, oh, ice. So I, ice became like, yeah, OK, of course, you're going to ice. Right. It makes it makes sense. And there's a basic science to support it. Right. And I would when I would lecture on acute injuries in sports and I would lecture, lecture on the price principle and I would explain, you know, pr uh, protection, relative rest, ice, compression, elevation. I would talk about what the science is for all those different things. And so ice can be very helpful to cause vasoconstriction and limit the amount of edema that forms and, and help with pain and decrease nerve conduction uh, velocity. But sometimes, you know, in a sport performance world, if you ice too much, it can actually limit sport performance. So if you ice down muscles too much, uh, they become less pliable, less elastic. Um, you can decrease the capability of a muscle if you ice too much. And, um, and we know that the bleeding and the, the vasodilatation that occurs following an injury is releasing all the different factors, which includes platelets, right, and fibroblasts and other tissue healing things that are very important for the area to heal. So if you blunt that response too much, then you could be blunting a healing response that might get in your way later on. So it's, it's trying to find this blend of short-term gain versus, you know, minimizing long-term loss, right? You don't want to do anything that works well right now, but a few weeks from now or a few months from now or a few years from now, it's going to cause a problem. So I do still think it's reasonable for 40 to 72 hours following an injury to use some level of icing to control pain, to control the excessive inflammatory response and to limit the amount of edema and restriction, which will restrict joint motion. Dr. Merlingo, I love that, that you made that comment about, you know, us not being too dogmatic of our approach. I mean, for instance, I remember when I was in high school, the motto was ice is nice, heat is not. And so it was like, just throw ice on everything. And, 
and it's encouraging because now, you know, we went from rice to meat, right? Movement, exercise, energy is a treatment. And yeah. now I think the official recommendations are the, the, the term is peace and love for it. it has all those things, but load, they even have optimism in there. And like vascularization is kind of what you're talking about, the bleeding, and, you know, the response yeah. and exercise. So I really love that we're evolving in that regard. Unfortunately, orthobiologics is a little bit more of, you know, quote unquote, getting people to buy in. And for those who can't see, of course, I'm quoting. Um, and, and I think p- part of the reason is because and you've talked about this so many times is there's no consensus on agreement, right? It is very, very important to have a clear understanding of what we're treating. Uh, you mentioned, you kind of alluded to the, the art and the nuances. Hey, is this individual in season? Because that the management is going to be drastically different of what you're going to do, what biologic you might use, which treatment algorithm you might go down. And the other thing worth noting uh, on, on, the, on the point of dogma is I've told Darshis before offline, because I've had the opportunity to rotate with you and work with you several times, is often people come to see you for a consultation for orthobiologic. And and I've seen you many times tell an individual that this is not actually the best treatment for you. And, and you actually have a whole treatment uh, sheet algorithm, particularly for osteoarthritis, but I'm sure you have it for other ones as well, where orthobiologics is all the way at the bottom of the, the sheet. Uh, right. So you've got to hit and check off and make sure everything else is dialed in, your nutrition's dialed in, weight loss is dialed in. Otherwise, people are just wasting their money. So that's also really important to understand. But I want to jump back to PRP really quickly. Okay. Because not all PRP is created equal. We know this. Uh, you've actually been uh, at the forefront of, of publishing this classification system, the PLR, PLR, PLRA classification system. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. And then if you could kind of maybe explain why all PRP is not created individuals, because I'll tell you, even just over the last couple of weeks, I just finished my sports rotation. And people have told me, oh, I've had PRP and it didn't work. And when I ask them, well, do you know specifically what you had done, right? Is it lucas at rich, poor? So love to hear your thoughts on that. And maybe we can try to explain to people why not all PRP is the same PRP. Yeah, well, that's a that, that's like a whole hour lecture almost. But I uh, appreciate you opening that can of worms. Um, so again, if we're trying to be scientific in medicine um, and we're trying to be precise, right, we want to try to and that's the buzzword is, you know, precision medicine, personalized medicine, then we need to tailor our treatments for the specific needs of the patient. So PRP came out a couple of decades ago, right? And so what is PRP? Platelet-rich plasma. And so somebody by the name of Kevy came up with a, what a, a definition of that, which is pretty meager, right? It's a platelet count or a platelet preparation that's higher than your baseline level of platelets. So let's say, and, that, and that's a, a little bit of a variation, right? Because some people have 100,000 platelets per deciliter and other people have 400,000. Um, and, so, uh, and so higher than your baseline uh, is the most fundamental, crudest method of determining what is PRP. I will tell you that there are some quote unquote PRP system systems that deliver less than baseline platelet concentrations. Uh, so that is implausible. So when you read the article and you read what was delivered, um, and so that's become an evolving problem as well. Is that the original articles came out, said I gave PRP, which meant I spun the blood down. I got rid of the red cells, I got rid of the plasma, I got this area that's called a buffy coat. In that buffy coat sits white cells and platelets. And, um, and then 
they will say that it was concentrated by a factor of 6x or 3x, three times the baseline. It tells me nothing, right? That's a, because you want to know what are the number of platelets that are delivered per deciliter and how much total volume you injected to figure out how many billion number of platelets that are delivered. So if you're truly interested in the science of PRP and platelets and appropriate PRP systems, you should look up someone by the name of Jeremy Magalone from France, who recently published a review of 30 different PRP systems and explained how much do you get out of that. And so this, uh, and then we use, so then we got a little bit, we, we try to sound so scientific and sharp. So we said, oh, well, certain things need leukocyte rich and other things need leukocyte poor. So we have these terminology that sounds like we're really drilling things down and maybe it's a little bit better. So what is a leukocyte rich versus leukocyte poor? Well, the leukocyte rich has a higher concentration of your white cells percentage wise than you do at baseline. And a leukocyte poor has tried to eliminate most of those white cells. Again, uh, maybe better, but the term leukocyte is a pretty broad term, right? Because leukocytes, there are a variety of leukocytes. And if you're in orthopedics, you're like, yeah, who cares? That's for the hematologist to worry about. Why do I care if it's a monocyte or a lymphocyte or a neutrophil macrophage kind of thing? And what? But it's important, right? Because especially for joints, we know, and probably for other areas, um, neutrophils in, in particular are contain lysosomes. And so we actually just had that discussion on one of my Malenga talk things to break it down because you have to know what is, and if you ever tried to look at these cells under a microscope, the difference between a monocyte and a macrophage slash neutrophil um, isn't really pretty subtle. I mean, you really got to, but the difference is physiologically and um, on a cellular level is a big difference. So actually monocytes can have some positive effects on tissue healing. Monocytes and their conversion from an M1 to an M2 is felt to be very important for a modulation of tissue healing and facilitating healing uh, from a, a pro-inflammatory type of cellular component to an anti-cellular component. So I've probably written three or four letters to the editor um, where I've read an article that talked about PRP is either being effective or ineffective, where the authors and some of these studies look really great. Some of them are randomized controlled studies that on the surface look like the most highest level of science you could get. But the authors fail to describe their PRP content. And one of the studies talked to, used a system that when you look at the prior research on it, is a system that basically can barely get you above a baseline level of platelets. And there has been already some basic science work to talk about what is appropriate levels of platelets for joints, for tendons. And in fact, you can actually go overboard. So if you go over 2 million platelets per deciliter, it actually has been shown for tendon problems to have a negative effect, um, a negative effect of healing. Um, and Al Tomash will know that I'm Mr. I love analogies, right? I have, I'm going to write a book of 
or somebody going to write the Malenga analogy book. But one of the analogies I, I, uh, I've used is that if you look at PRP as being a fertilizer, that helps to fertilize. And so within a fertilizer, you're trying to get your green lawn to get better and you're trying to suppress the crabgrass and the other stuff. So if you think about PRP in a joint, trying to support healthy articular cartilage and suppress all those inflammatory mediators. But if I take my son and we just start throwing fertilizer all over the lawn, um, we're not going to get a green lawn. We're going to get a brown, burnt out lawn. Because if we throw too much of that fertilizer on there, it's not going to be a good thing. If you don't have enough, it might work a little bit, but you're not going to achieve that nice green lawn that you're trying to achieve in the elimination of the weeds. That's my little analogy, at least for a joint. And for tendons, again, what these uh, what PRP has is a super concentration of platelets that release various growth factors that have been found to be very helpful in the modulation of inflammation and neurogenic pain. Modulation of various cytokines with a downregulation of inflammatory degradatory uh, type of cytokines and an upregulation of, of cytokines that can help nurture a joint or nurture a tendon. So hopefully that answers. It absolutely does. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. To, to your point about uh, in Jeremy Magalone, I, I think I was actually at the, la he presented at the last IOF con in-person conference that we had. And when his presentation, I saw this actually blew my mind that that had, and, you know, and, and that's, it kind of stresses the importance of why we need to be, as you said, very precise with our words and particularly for individuals who are publishing this in the, in the literature in today's day and age of information, right? Where on social media, people are publishing, you have Twitter, you have Instagram, people are so popular, you have publications coming out on a daily basis, uh, just mountains and mountains of literature. The average person who is not trained in medical education is not a scientist or not a clinician, they can't sift through this, right? And it's it's incumbent upon us as scientists and clinicians to make sure that we try to simplify this process and not make it more convoluted for them and, and, and you know, just add to that confusion. Because I always go back to rule number one as a physician, it's do no harm. And this is kind of where, where you started. We were talking about the potential harmful effects of corticosteroid, but also for these anesthetics, right? We're using lidocaine, we're using marcaine. Yep. You've been talking about that for years now. Um, you know, so it, it's really important for us to, when we know with these individuals who are in chronic pain, particularly, and, or who have these chronic injuries and we have to maybe treat them, you know, at a repetitive scale type thing is if you're going to obey that rule number one and do no harm, and that's what you're going for, do at least the, the least amount of harm as possible, then uh, the burden of proof is on us to try to find an alternative solution. And if orthobiologics is the right answer or it's not the right answer, we need to do extra research. And this is kind of, we're going to ask you a little bit more about data biologics towards the end that, that you're at, you know, making this effort for. But I think that you, you've kind of explained now, you've touched on prolotherapy, you've explained platelet-rich plasma in detail. Thank you for that. You've talked about the cellular treatments, both bone marrow and adipose tissue for the clinician, uh, maybe not the avid researcher or, you know, who's busy in clinic. And maybe if a patient comes and asks them, Hey doc, like, you know, we've tried this, 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 and nothing's working all the conservative treatments. I've read about this. What are your thoughts? What do you think would be a good treatment for me? How would that clinician go about approaching which orthobiologic might be appropriate for a patient? What are your, you've kind of explained it, but just a general thought. 
Yeah, so here's my general thought is that uh, what concerns me in medicine is that too many of us are lazy and we want just the simple answer, right? We want the price or the meat. We just want somebody, we want the algorithm. And medicine and many healthcare systems, large orthopedic groups, it's just run people through an algorithm, not sift it and, and, and be precise, not spend some time. So that, you know, to be, to provide personalized medicine, you have to take a pretty detailed history, right? William Osler uh, talked about the importance of the history and how the history can actually reveal the disease or the diagnosis if you spend enough time trying to get a really good history. Then doing a physical examination where you actually put your hands on a patient, which is therapeutic in and of itself. You, I can't tell you, you guys know the number of patients that come in that have been seen by several physicians and you'll just do your simple exam and they'll say, wow, nobody examined me like that. Actually, nobody even touched me uh, when they examined me. And that's how people like chiropractors really take off because you can criticize chiropractors all you want, but they actually lay their hands on human beings and they try to do something therapeutic. And then you get imaging to supplement, not to push your diagnosis, to supplement it. And so we've replaced history and examination with lots of imaging studies when we know that imaging studies hardly ever correlate uh, with or often don't correlate with many of the complaints that someone will come through the door with. And the number of positive imaging studies in the asymptomatic population, including if you look at imaging studies from young athletes at the NFL Combine, if you look at their imaging studies, you would scratch your head because that very next day, that person is running a 4-4-40 yard dash. And you look at MRI of their ankle and you go, wow, that shouldn't even be possible at all. So you can't get hung up on the imaging study. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, um, your question is, what should the average clinician do? And where is the algorithm? What is the path? And I think there is a little bit of an algorithm. But what I would share with you is that if you really want to do this, then you're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to do some study. You're going to have to spend some time to understand this. Otherwise, just be honest. One of the things that is mystifying, again, when I listen to people talk on TV about various things, including the current COVID world, or world, is that no one is willing to say, you know what? I really don't know. Be really honest. I really don't know. But I do know that there's this doctor here who really has spent a lot of time trying to sift this out. So, I want you to go see that person. So either you're going to make the effort and study and understand things um, versus the current world of certain, especially orthopedic surgeons saying that stuff doesn't work. That stuff is full of, you know, hype um, who also really don't know the literature and the other people who will say, yeah, this works for everything. This will grow your hair. Uh, you'll, you'll get better erections and your, all your joints will be pain-free, right? Uh, that can't be there either. We have to be precise, be patient-centered. You know, I spent four years at Mayo Clinic. When you graduate from your fellowship or residency at Mayo Clinic, they give you a picture of Will and Charles Mayo 
with a, a sign underneath, do what's in the best interest of the patient. And you all know what the definition of doctor is, right? The definition of doctor is teacher. But you're not going to teach unless you know stuff. And you're not going to be able to teach if you don't spend time teaching, right? It takes time getting a history exam and spending time explaining stuff to patients. I love that. And, and that, that's our hope here is that, you know, some we can help educate and maybe dispel some of the myths, if you will, and, and try to get good information out there. Two things stick out to me there, Dr. Malenga, when you're talking about being precise and making sure we get a good history, good physical exam, you probably, you might not remember this, but I, I want to say this was, um, you know, I, I had happened to tag along with you at one of the board review courses when you were teaching and, and you said, there's only two X's that matter, RX or DX and RX. And, and that's kind of what you're saying here is, you know, you want to make sure you have a really good diagnosis before you can try to figure out what treatment is going to work for the patient. And I always remember that. And, and, and I've heard another uh, brilliant person say that as well. And, you know, I, I think about that, especially when it comes to these types of treatments and you know, if a treatment didn't work and you use the, you know, use the improper treatment for the appropriate pathology, or if you didn't have the right diagnosis and then the treatment didn't work, then how could you say that the treatment didn't work, right? So that's something that's really important. And the other thing I'll say is to your point about, I, I've often, uh, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes I've been in a clinic working with somebody during my training where uh, the patient might ask about this, you know, this orthobiologic PRP and that stuff. And the, the person I'm working with, you know, uh, precepting with might say, oh, there's no evidence for that. And in my mind, uh, having the opportunity to have worked with you and been, you know, invested in this space, in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, there actually is. <laughs> but of course, you don't want to be disrespectful in that regard. And you kind of hold your tongue. So what is you, you being, you've been in academics your whole life, that term evidence-based medicine, what does that mean to you exactly? I mean, there's this whole triad that Darsh and I talk about now, which actually is well published, but how do you, how do you explain evidence-based medicine to your patients and your colleagues? Yeah, that, you know, that's a word that is, or, or a phrase that's thrown around maybe improperly. It's sort of um, held as a suit of armor for the academician, let's say, and they will either say to those of us that are providing innovative treatments, there's no evidence for that, um, or to patients. Um, so if the person responded, there's no evidence of that that I know of, and I haven't really done the research to learn it, that would be honest. But if they say there's no evidence, and they put a period at the end of it, there's an assumption, especially by patients, that that person has actually looked at that area of medicine, has studied the literature on it, and has then concluded, based on perhaps uh, other thought leaders, that there is no evidence, um, or there, the evidence is mixed or lacking. Um, if you look at, when I look at the orthopedic world, and I look at what happens, uh, um, the lack of evidence for what occurs in orthopedic treatments. Um, and when I listen to residents tell me what they're taught, um, I would say 80% of what is being done and what is being taught lacks evidence and in fact flies in the face of the current evidence. And in fact, not only flies in the face of current evidence, 
it is the opposite of the current evidence. So if people are getting corticosteroid injections for chronic tendinopathies, um, then whoever is doing that is not only not evidence-based, but is actually flying in the face of and ignoring the evidence of the harmful effects of that treatment. Um, so uh, as residents, you guys are sort of up against it. And it, and it um, maybe is one of the reasons that drove me to do these Malanga podcast talks, because, I mean, Altamesh would know that I like to talk. So, but, and we like to have, I like to be interactive and, and I like to be instructive at the same time. And, and I enjoyed my, I always enjoy my interactions, but it, each one of them was going to be one off. So I would be saying statements each time every young, exciting, thoughtful resident or student like Altamesh. And I'd have to keep doing that over and over again. And I, you know, but this platform now through, and it was, you know, uh, introduced to me by a medical student and my current fellow, and they help carry it out, um, is a way I'm hoping to help residents. Because like you say, what are you going to say to your attending? Hey, look, I just went to a conference and they presented the literature on PRP for chronic lateral epicondylosis, or they presented the literature on uh, knee osteoarthritis, mild to moderate compared to saline, corticosteroids, and HA. And it's pretty comp compelling. And even the journal Arthroscopy and multiple meta-analysis has, uh, has noted the, the evidence for PRP. Uh, it's really hard for you all to do that unless your attending is one that's not overly ego-centered and said, you know, look, if you've got an idea, I try to do that. I try to have conversations and I say, I don't know everything, so I'm, I'm eager to learn more, right? So, um, but, you know... Uh, I've looked at the literature, current, uh, classic, what's going on in orthopedics, and I've looked at a lot of literature. And in fact, we will be publishing uh, a white paper on the safety and efficacy of orthobiologics for orthopedic conditions through IOF that I just, it took me a year with many other folks involved, um, with over 400 references. So Dr. Malenga, thank you so much for, for your wisdom. You know, I, I think this is the beauty of medicine is that there's an art and a science to it, right? And and the science being an EBM, but like, what does that even mean? What are what are, what are what are we filtering through? You talk about how an athlete can run a 4-4, but you look at their ankle and you, you think, how is that even possible? So I just want to thank you. You know, you talk about, there's a book actually out there called Attending by Ronald Epstein, who talks about being more in the present moment, getting that good history and physical exam. Because the more time you spend up front with that patient, the better off that patient's going to be in the long run, right? And, and if we're talking about holistic, patient-centered care, talking about the mind, body, and spirit, I think that's what it really encompasses. And for your uh, podcast, you know, I, I just want to let people out there who, who, who I, I really recommend listening to it because it's not only about the science of, you know, PM&R. But you also touch on the art of it, right? About how clinicians want a quick fix. And you talk about this in your last episode with the uh, greater trochanteric pain syndrome that you bring up this analogy where uh, uh, there's, uh -oh. there's, there's a hungry child <laughs> at night, right? And as a parent, we can say they're, they're, they're the doctor of that child. You know, you have two options. You can, you can do the quick fix, which would be like, you know, Captain Crunch at night with a lot of sugar and just unhealthy or, you know, you can sit that child down, talk to them, figure out truly what's going on. 
And so if you give that Captain Crunch, sure, you might you might uh, quiet that baby for a little bit, but the next night, what's going to happen? It's going to cry again. And so, you know, I think that's where that art of medicine really comes in, in terms of understanding patients and not strictly just going by an algorithm, but also just understanding, talking to that patient. So thank you so much for that. It was just really speaking my language. So how to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part of that is that, you know, as a parent, that giving sugary cereals is not in the best interest of your child. You know, it's not healthy. And occasionally you'll do that because you're in a really rough spot, right? You're in the airport, the kid's breaking down, you got to do something. But you're not going to keep doing that over and over again, right? You're going to figure out the path that's more holistic and helpful and healthy for that child and for us in medicine for your patient. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Malenga. And so to that note, you know, what I'll ask you is there might be a lot of clinicians who aren't as well versed in this literature. And maybe they'll say um, to the patient that, hey, listen, you know, I'm not familiar with this evidence, but they don't know who to send that patient to, right? Of course, if you're in that you know, central northern New Jersey area, or actually even you've had patients come from all over the East Coast to see you, maybe even further than that. Uh, actually, I know further than that. Uh, and they know about your work. And there's a lot of great people doing this work all over the country, all over the world. But it's still pretty challenging for some some physicians aren't as involved in, you know, MSSM and IOF and uh, Toby and those types of things. How can clinicians know who to refer to for this type of stuff? Maybe even for a consultation. And in today's world, actually now where tele, telemedicine is something that's probably going to, going to change the way we practice medicine, it actually might make individuals who might be in a different state more out, you know, um, uh, uh, more available for that. So what are your thoughts about how clinicians can seek out providers who might be more well-versed such as yourself in this? Well, I first want to say that it's not anything that anyone couldn't do if they were interested. If I can do it, anybody can do it, right? Um, so I think you have to decide and put some effort in it. it and there's lots of different re resources. You know, I'm the past president of IOF. I'm on the board of IOF. I'm very involved. I think it's a really thoughtful organization that is actually dedicated to standard guidelines and education, both educating in these concepts, as well as hands-on uh, uh, courses where you want to learn how to inject a variety of different things and you want to learn some of the science. Um, and AMSSM is currently evolving in this space. AMSSM has been way behind in this, uh, but now has an entire task force dedicated to it with some really excellent uh, thought leaders and educators. That include Shane Shapiro, Mayo Jacksonville, uh, Ken Mountner, um, a variety of other folks that um, they will eventually uh, create content uh, for its members. The American Academy of PMNR, through the leadership of Stu Weinstein, is really now dedicated and has formed a task force in our academy to create educational content so that people can become aware of and provide these treatments, or at least be aware of and speak intelligently on these treatments, right? Um, I think if, you know, you don't want to do it, uh, you, you want to try to find a local person that, you know, you might want to refer to, perhaps you can have your patient go onto the IOF website and look at members there. Um, and maybe we need to create other resources for patients that perhaps, we, uh, you know, myself and some colleagues will be working on. 
Yeah, perfect. So I was actually just about to ask you what resources patients can use. And just real quick for the for the audience, uh, AMSSM stands for American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Um, yes. But yeah, for, on the flip side, how do how do patients filter through the noise, right? How how do they approach their uh, doctors about whether you know PRP, adipose tissue, bone marrow, if this is right for them? I know I'm not sure if you heard the podcast Bad Batch by Wondery. Um, it was yeah, yeah so yeah. you know I've I've heard it. I think a lot of people might actually be freaked out now by these types of procedures, you know, especially with the word sex sure. being thrown out. So how do you sure. what do you what do you recommend patients do? Um, well, it's really tricky, um, you know. Mark Twain once said, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. And I've added a corollary and believe the opposite of what you get off the internet, right? So um, so the internet and the web is filled with, man, so many things. And how do you get to the top of the thing? Let's say you're gonna look for PRP for tendon problems. It's if you advertise. So many of the advertisers are, somewhat unscrupulous folks that know that's the game to get people in the door to sell or to push their products, right? And man, that shouldn't be what how people learn about things. Um, I think there are some credible organizations. I mean, the FDA has a website. The FDA will just talk about all the things that shouldn't be done or couldn't be done and not really a, a useful resource. IOF, I think, has some content, but perhaps should have more that's patient-focused, patient um centered type of uh, things. Um, I, I think people, again, uh, shouldn't look for the quick, easy answer and need to do their homework um, and need to sift through some of this and see where the science sits and not go for the banner ad or the first thing that pops up on a Google search. Yeah, absolutely. And then is, are, is, are these treatments insurance? Are they covered by insurance? Are they cash-based? None of them are covered by insurance, which is a mixed thing. Um, so for the anti-regenerative medicine world, they say, yeah, these are just people that are trying to rip off the general public and, you know, they're, you know, see, they're not covered. There's no merit to them. Um, in my mind, when you deliver um, something where somebody's paying for it, um, you should be offering a service that is at the highest level. In fact, all of the medicine should be done that way, right? But we sort of can hide behind the fact that an insurance company will pay for something so we can do all these different procedures and so what, because the patient isn't paying for it. But currently now more uh, patients are paying for more and more things between their deductibles and co-pays. They are shelling out more and more money for various things. And so they're starting to understand the, that there's no free lunch. Um, so for me, you know, it, I have, there's no way I'm going to be offering treatments and performing unsatisfactory treatments when somebody's laying out money and then I'm going to see them in follow-up. And I have to have to see patient after patient who paid cash for something that didn't work. That's, you know, on a simplistic side, just totally embarrassing, right? I mean, that's not, that's not really good for the ego if you're thinking egocentric. If you're thinking other-centric, it's also not so good, right? Here's a person who with good intention laid out $500, $1,000. I mean, some folks are paying $10,000 for their treatments. Um, and you provided no benefit um, or very little benefit. That's not, that's not good karma. That's for sure. Um, for us, it starts with the initial understanding of what 
the expectation is going to be for these various treatments. And that's going to be based upon what the literature has shown. So when I do an injection for chronic lateral epicondylosis, I tell them that this has an 85%, 90% chance of one injection taking care of your problem. Um, and in fact, if it doesn't, I offer additional treatments for free. Um, or I have to relook at my initial diagnosis. I must have missed something because it's such a predictable thing. I don't think there's any other treatment out there that where a physician would give you that degree of certainty of your outcome. Other things, we're very honest. So for people with significant knee osteoarthritis, and if we offer them a bone marrow or adipose procedure, we have collected our own data. So we know our data and we can talk about that later. And we know what the medical literature has shown. And assuming we're doing procedures similar to what the paper uh, presented, then we can dis uh, describe. But most of those we will describe as in the 50 to 55% improvement in pain and function. It's uh, We are never saying things like 90% improvement, guaranteed, going to grow new cartilage. We never say any of that. We want to really be have the patient be as fully informed based upon the current medical literature and based upon data that we have collected and seen in our own hands. And then we let the patients make the decision uh, because they're going to be uh, getting out the credit card or, or paying the amount of money for the procedure. Yeah, Dr. Melanie, it, it always goes back to why you're doing it, right? It, to your point about offering the patient recurrent treatments if they haven't gotten better and you're just trying to figure out, hey, let me take a step backwards and see, did I approach this incorrectly? What was diagnosed? Did I miss something? Um, you know, again, it, it's, it's about why are you doing it? And, and if you're one of the quote unquote bad, bad players or on the dark side of orthobiologics, then, then, then maybe that's just a way to charge. And I'm not saying that, that you know, I know anybody and, and people, but unfortunately there are some people who aren't in it for the right reasons. Um, but you know, speaking of, you mentioned anti-subclassification of some medicine, regenerative medicine. For me, one of the things was I was very much, this was a, a naive mindset that I had, was very much anti-surgery, right? I, and, and that's why I wanted to go into a, a non-surgical specialty of, of musculoskeletal medicine and say, hey, we can rehab everything and, and we can do uh, myofascial release and we can do all this stuff. And and uh, I, I know better now, fortunately. I, of course, still have tons more to learn. but. Could you talk a little bit about when, just maybe some examples of often surgery maybe is the better approach when somebody comes to you and, and they talk to you and, and they want to avoid surgery at all costs. And I've seen you do this where you're like, you know what, it's in your best interest to get surgery now, whether it's because of, you know, it doesn't have to be a highly spe um, specialized approach, like an in-season or out-of-season athlete, but just a general individual. And then my second part of that question is how can we work with surgeons? orthopedic surgeons in this field of orthobiologics to help our patients, maybe biologic augmentation of surgical procedures. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I appreciate that concept. Um, first, I would say that in everyday life and in medicine, we shouldn't be anti anything, right? Being anti something doesn't really help. We have to be positive. We have to be positive and, and forthcoming and honest about things that we can do. And we have to be, uh, like Clint Eastwood said in a movie, we have to know our limitations, what we're able to do and what we're unable to do. And we have to have a knowledge base of our other specialists and specialties. Because if you have no idea what 
those surgical interventions involve and how the literature would support certain surgical procedures as being extraordinarily helpful, uh, you need to know that as much as you need to know what the potential outcomes are for non-operative treatments. I would say that as a non-operative specialist, I have more reservations in recommending surgery than a surgeon um, because I come in with a non-surgical bias and the surgeon, you know, to be honest, comes in with a surgical bias, right? So we have to understand our biases to begin with. And we have to express that to the patient because patients may also have a bias. There are certain patients that just say, look, I just want something done. I don't want to deal with it. I want somebody to then then surgery might be the answer. In terms of orthobiologics versus surgical treatments, orthopedic surgery is built to take care of things that are biomechanical problems. It's a, a fabulous field. If your bone is sticking in a 90 degree angle when it should be straight, there ain't no regenerative orthobiologic treatment to take care of that problem, right? So, if your problem, though, is a matter of dysfunction related to pain and inflammation and, and a painful dysfunction, then I think orthopedic surgeons and surgery tries to address that, but has gotten down a rabbit hole that often is not great. And that ranges from disc problems, right, spine surgery, um, and other pain and inflammatory processes. Pain and inflammation now um, are related to chronic degenerative conditions that are now recognized as being related to chronic underlying inflammation. And what mainstream medicine is slowly understanding is the majority of chronic degenerative conditions, ranging from Alzheimer's to coronary artery disease to diabetes, is actually related to cr this chronic inflammatory states that many of us are existing with, related to our diet, what we're eating, related to our levels of obesity, related to stress, related to um, EMF and other environmental factors. And so to be holistic, we need to have people look at that and get good rest and try to decompress and or meditate um, and try to be on what is well described as a low inflammatory diet, which can be extraordinarily helpful in uh, reducing weight and looking at the microbiome of the gut and its role. I mean, these are things that are not really part of a PM&R residency, orthopedic residency, et cetera, but can have extraordinarily great impacts on not only a bad knee, but on other areas as well. Um, and then, you know, there are conditions where blending treatments may have profound benefit. I mean, uh, Dr. Hernigou from France has shown that doing a rotator cuff repair and combining it with bone marrow concentrate can reduce the retear rate from, you know, sometimes retear rates are as high as 70% in elderly populations, but let's say about 30% to less than 10%, 8% an extraordinarily great benefit. And there are chondral surgeries and other surgeries that clearly, and, and there's evolving evidence that show the combination. There's a great study looking at high tibial osteotomy com 
combined with cellular treatment showing profound um, improvements and added benefit from that combination of treatment. So high tibial osteotomy, uh, treating an orthopedic knee problem that is a combination of pain, inflammation, and axis problem, um, that combination together is a thoughtful approach and not and or. We have to try to figure out. So it's like Venn diagrams, right? So you have the Venn diagram or the circle for surgery. You have the circle for non-operative treatments and or biologics. And then you have where those things can overlap and when those things should be one or the other. And But again, it requires us that treat patients to have a really good understanding of not only what we do, but what our colleagues do as well. Absolutely. And this is one of the reasons actually, you know, having some say in how we curate our didactus and our curriculum here, uh, we recently just started rotating with orthopedic surgery. I actually realized in our program that we weren't spending any time with orthopedic surgeons. And I thought it was so important for us to understand surgical indications, but also we often see individuals who've had surgical procedures before. And, you know, it's so important to understand what type of approach they've had and what might have indicated, you know, what complications they could have, but also the limitations they might have in the future. So I really, really appreciate that. And of course, the point that you made about taking care of your foundations, right? The, the low hanging fruit and, and, and uh, the keystone habits, Darsh and I, you know, when we talk about our five pillars of good health and medicine, some of this we're borrowing from or stealing, hopefully it doesn't mind from Peter Atia is we talk about sleep, exercise, nutrition, you know, distress or stress tolerance, like mindfulness, meditation, that type of stuff. And then exogenous substances or molecules. And that's where pharmaceuticals come in. We kind of put orthobiologics, although orthobiologics is somewhat of a hybrid of that. And that's where you put that just to make it simple. And, and again, going back to making sure those sleep exercise, and this is one of the reasons we spent so much time on this podcast thus far talking about nutrition, because if you don't have that right, and all these inflammatory conditions, the chronic musculoskeletal pain, failure to heal in the appropriate time frame from tendinous ligamentous injuries, um, it's going to be much harder. And you can throw all the cellular treatments and PRP to it if, if you're not going to uh, take care of those things, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, no pun intended. And uh, But on that note, though, uh, let's talk a little bit about rehab. Um, you know, you've spent a lot of time over, over the past couple of years, at least at conferences and stuff, you're on the um, the, uh, the the panel for the, the chair for MSSM for regenerative medicine. I think that, you know, in residency and in, in fellowship and training, we're learning about orthobiologics, these novel treatments. We, we tend to sometimes forget that physical therapy is still the staple of rehab, right? And in, in fact, a lot of, I just read a paper with um, Dr. Bowers and Dr. Mountner uh, of, of a great overview biologics paper. And I really liked towards the end, they talked about rehab strategies after biologics. And of course, we're still trying to figure that out. So um, you know, what are your thoughts about like, because we can do a great biologic, you can have everything, but if the patient doesn't do good quality rehab afterwards, then it's really hard to say that whether the treatment worked. I mean, so it's a big picture approach, right? would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you know, uh, the rehab is uh, where you bring home the bacon. That's the finish line. Everything else creates the platform for really good rehab. In fact, that was a line out of a... Um, a, a orthopedic knowledge book, a study book, uh, written by a really great orthopedic uh, surgeon who's a soldier, a shoulder specialist, Sean O'Driscoll. Just an incredible mind, originally from Canada. But basically, he writes in that intro that 
uh, surgery creates the platform for good rehabilitation to occur. And he talks about things like, you know, shoulder dislocations and, and, and reestablishing the anatomy, um, elbow issues and reestablishing the anatomy. And then once that anatomy is set in good position, then you need the rehab. And there's, there's been lots of articles actually, um, or not, not enough, quite frankly, but there've been several articles that talking the importance of rehab after orthobiologic treatments. And it totally makes sense, right? It's this concept that you all have probably talked about of mechanotransduction, where the signal comes in from the loading of the, of the tissues to reset and re-signal um, uh, to the cells to lay down more collagen tissue, to hypertrophy muscle, to get bone to be stronger, right? Those are signals that are related to rehabilitation. What I would say is that, again, I'm vastly disappointed by what residents get taught regarding rehabilitation, regarding exercise, regarding physical therapy. You have to know the nuances, right? You can't say strengthen the lower extremities on your rehab uh, prescription. You have to try. Now, you might have great therapists that totally understand what they need to do and you don't need to write any detail. But you should be aware of the details because many patients go to pretty poor physical therapy. I mean, physical ter the, the term physical therapy is a big black box with, with physical therapists that range from, I don't know, they, they should be, I don't know, just lay person's knowledge of what they do to people that are like just incredible thought leaders and understand the various nuances. You have a process like a patellofemoral joint problem and you don't address the multiple areas along the kinetic chain, and you just focus on the patella, um, you're, you're not gonna provide comprehensive treatment. And as a PMNR or a physician that's interested in the rehab, if you don't know the nuances of the foot and ankle and its effect on the patellofemoral joint, the pelvis and the hip abductors and its effect on the patellofemoral joint, the positioning of the femur and its effect on patellofemoral joint, the soft tissues around patellofemoral joint, the IT band, the, uh, the, the importance of VMO, but not just VMO, but the firing patterns of the, uh, of the VMO to the lateralis, and the little subtleties that can take you from success to failure. Um, you know, you're going to be reliant on somebody else and you're not going to have any understanding of what's happening and your patient's going to come back and say, yeah, physical therapy didn't work. Uh, it, when somebody says to me, physical therapy didn't work, I say, what did they do? I make them describe what they did. I have them show me if they can do a squat. And sometimes they have no idea how to do a squat. Or when I watch them do a squat, um, not that I am Mr. Squat Master, I'm like, wow, that is exactly the wrong thing to do. That will exactly load that joint. But if you, and you can't tell a person don't do squats because that obviously will express your ignorance in how the human body works in daily activities. If we're going to be, if we're living in, a, um, a, you know, um, a water world, right? Um, then and you don't need to do weight bearing then uh, but if you're doing weight bearing you better know how to do a really good squat somebody better be able to look at that look at the entire kinetic chain look where you're not firing right and reteach you how to do a squat and if we don't know that 
as the clinicians, how can we guide our patients to the right type of quote unquote rehab? Dr. Malenga, that warms my heart to, to, to hear about you asking patients to squat and then showing them how to squat properly. Cause I mean, you, you know that cause with my background yeah. and, yeah. and I'll say, you know, that point I, I had the opportunity to shadow a couple of amazing physical therapists up in the Boston region pretty recently, actually champion PT and performance. They are what I consider to be high end performance based physical therapy and they have an amazing model. And, you know, we just talked about how, again, we'll just take knee osteoarthritis as an example, kind of what you, you mentioned is often individuals maybe don't want to do cortisone, especially maybe a younger individual, right? And maybe that knee replacement is somewhere down the future, but we want to kick that can further down the road for obvious reasons. And, you know, they'll, they'll go to physical therapy and they'll come back and, you know, I'll ask them just like you mentioned is what did you do? And they'll tell me, you know, we, we spent some time doing straight leg raises and, but most of the session was spent with heat or ice or like, uh, you know, uh, stim on there. And it's just like, what are we even doing? And a quote from a famous strength and conditioning coach, uh, Eric Cressy always resonates with me is, you know, patients will come back and we say they fail therapy and therefore we're going to go to the algorithm, if you will, yes. which is the next one might be either visco supplementation or corticosteroid or whatever it might be, maybe PRP, but really rehab failed that person. Right. right, because they didn't. We didn't do a good job. So right. it's again, it's not all treatments are created equal. Not PRP is created. Not all rehabs created equal. So super, super important for us to understand. And this is one of the reasons I went into PMNR because we don't write eval and treat on a prescription. Right, you have to be very specific what you want to do. Of course, you want to give the physical therapist. You know, you want to be respectful and courteous because they know what they're doing too. But this is why it's so important to establish that relationship. I know we're coming up on time here, and, and I'd be remiss not to ask you about data biologics. This is something so awesome that you're doing. So could you talk a little bit about what that is and you know, what was the inspiration for you to, to develop this platform for people to record data? Yeah, so I've been interested in data and outcomes for a couple of decades, actually. Way back in the late 90s, um, the orthopedic uh, community had something called the modems program that they were offering to clinicians to collect data. And we were all, the only non-surgical group to join that. And it, it fell apart I and mean, they couldn't sustain it. But um, I, something in me was always driven by trying to find out what, how our outcomes were. I want to know how we were doing, right? Um, and so we've been collecting data for over a decade in various forms. And then a few years back, we, uh, myself, uh, Jay Bo, and my partner, another great thought leader, Chris Rogers out in uh, San Diego, California region, um, got together and said, well, why don't we create an electronic platform, uh, patient-centered, app-based, a patient can get on it on their phone and things like that. So we created this company called Data Biologics. We rolled out this product in 2019. We engaged uh, clinicians, and then we said, well, if it, if it works for us, maybe our colleagues would want it and others around would want it. Um, and so we've learned a lot. We've had to do a lot of research in what are, you know, what is data, how to collect data, what forms do patients are tolerant of doing, what are the classic um, uh, supported outcome measures, patient-reported outcome measures, and things like that. And so uh, it's been around for about two years now. We have about 60 clinicians, 30, over 3,500 patients are in right now. We've rededicated resources to redo the entire platform to make it better, easier, simpler. We, we've 
knowing our colleagues and hearing about what goes on, people are interested in outcomes, but they really don't want to spend any money doing it. They don't want to have, they don't have any time. They don't have any staff time. So we've tried to create something that I use the mnemonic SUP, simple, user-friendly and practical. And um, we have now another dozen clinics that are going to be signing up and we're probably going to sign up another hundred clinics by the end of the year. And so when you start collecting this amount of data using the variety of orthobiologic treatments, then you can truly make some determination of what quote unquote works or what doesn't work. And then you can substratify. So what works in a 40 to 50 year old female with moderate knee arthritis, right? What works for complete rotator cuff tears versus rotator cuff tendinopathy? And not only what works, what are the exact numbers, right? It's not, it's not black, white, on, off. It's what works, meaning, all right, you have this procedure. You get this percentage of improvement in your pain and your function. You, uh, 80% of patients get greater than an MCID, right? At least something that, is, that you can express to the patient that is the reality of their expected outcome. And then over time, this will be something that will be uh, patient-centered, where patients can start looking and finding these things. And that's our hope in the future is to make this something so that going back to your question from before, what can a patient look for or what can, who should, should, can a clinician seek out? They can seek out somebody who's in this data biologics network collecting data. Because at the very least, that person has shown an interest and a desire to look at what's happening. So they must be pretty thoughtful to want to do that. And maybe over time, create an entire network of physicians that are dedicated to certain standards, uh, certain um, way, methods of uh, assessing and treating patients, and certain algorithms that have been established based upon the data that's collected with a desire to continue to collect data to refine what gets done. And then we really get to the point of precision medicine, you know, um, things that are done with a rationale for doing them, things that have uh, true outcome measures that have been reported. So at this time, the it's is it primarily and 100% patient reported outcomes. Do you, do you have any thoughts of like adding maybe, you know, either imaging afterwards, ultrasound guidance or whatever might be looking at diagnostic scanners or any, anything of that nature in there that you're looking at as well to adding it? Um, well, you know, again, uh, you can start adding things, but what I've seen at the, at the front end and at the back end, but collecting data for data itself can be just a quagmire that gets you and then you don't know what to do with all of that data. So on the front end, we're going to start collecting data such as past medical history and medications. We will collect basic stuff such as uh, sex and age and BMI and things like that. Um, on the back end, we're going to collect certain parameters, but I would caution against looking at imaging studies because imaging studies do not correlate, have not correlated with how patients do with biologics. When I first did PRP, I would get a repeat ultrasound on everyone. I would do a repeat ultrasound on everyone that I injected. And you know what I found? That it didn't make a difference. But there were some times where somebody got 90% improvement and I scanned their tendon and it barely looked different than before. And then I would sit there with a patient 
and they would say, so it's a lot better, right, Doc? It's it's, And I had to be honest. And I'd say, well, you know, it might be a little touch better. I mean, I would try to hedge it a little bit, but I couldn't say it was a lot better. And so that only created like doubt for the patient and doubt for me that, oh, maybe it didn't work when it didn't make a hill of beans, just like that NFL athlete at the combine. Uh, so our over-reliance on imaging, I think it's flawed. I think we're going to continue to study it in some of our research to see what happens, uh, to see the potential for changes to occur. And that has been demonstrated. So the reason why people say, oh, you can regenerate cartilage is that, in fact, uh, people that have been uh, treated with adipose or bone marrow and you do repeat MRIs, or in fact, if you do repeat arthroscopies, there is improvement in the articular cartilage. Now, that's probably related to uh, facilitating the endogenous cells that are there to replicate and improve, right? A signaling effect on, on the, the uh, stems, the cells that are there. Um, but it, quite frankly, it really doesn't make a difference uh, what the imaging. And so I tell patients, our goal, my goal for them, and I think their goal for themselves are the two Fs, how you feel and how you function. The pictures if we were doing plastic surgery, that would make a big difference, right? But we're not doing plastic surgery, so I really don't care what your x-ray looks like. I really don't care what your MRI looks like. I want to know, and I think you want to know, how you feel and how you function. I love that. Um, yeah, so with, with all of this being said, everything we've talked about almost in the last hour and a half, what's the direction of orthobiologics looking like? You know, Are there any new types of treatments, any new type of cells that we're looking at? Where's this headed? <laughs> well, um, I think we're headed to some really useful treatments that are going to be readily available at the bedside that need to be sifted out. Um, I, I think we will need to clean up the mess and find the places for certain uh, treatments. They may have some value, but have been overinflated and um overly advertised, such as umbilical cells, such as amniotic um, fluid and, and, and matrices and things like that. I, I think there are some things in those things that can be of benefit, but need to be teased out. And then there's this wild west of a world of things called exosomes, right? Um, which are these extracellular vesicles that are released by cells and released by stem cells that again, have been hyped up and over um, marketed and commercialized before the science is there. I have concerns because many of the exosome products are pooled products from other human beings that could contain things that may not be desirable if they're injected in another person. So you guys are both really athletic and healthy guys. And someone would say, let me grab their exosomes from their uh, bone marrow and inject it in Malanga, but you guys may have some sequence that in me may not be the best thing. So um, there's, a, there's a company that's doing something intriguing where they're actually taking or obtaining exosomes from the patient's own platelet poor plasma. So it's an autologous exosome product that in my mind seems really intriguing and needs to be tested out. At the end of the day, Anybody that has something new, if they uh, sign up for a database and collect the data and show data 
not only for their product, but data compared to other things and data across various things shows safety of that product and shows efficacy, then that, that data will speak for itself. You won't need like a Dr. Malenga to talk about it. Yeah. No, so, so it seems like there's, there's definitely a lot, you know, that, that we can look forward to. And I'm going to be selfish here and ask you for some advice. So for me, who's someone that's very interested in learning about these, you know, me going into my first year of physical medicine rehab this upcoming July, how can I get involved in terms of learning about this field? Well, you should definitely join IOF because it's free okay. for students and residents. Um, you, I would suggest that you learn the basics of rehabilitation and anatomy and biomechanics as much as you can, as best as you can. Become a really good physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist. Learn the uh, core values of our specialty. Learn about spinal cord injury. Learn about head injury because it'll have applications in other areas that will be important. Um, don't don't say, well, I'll just go through the motions on those rotations because I'm interested in sports and orthopedics. No, dive in full. Learn it really well. Learn how they coexist. You know, if and it's a little tragic that our spinal cord injury doctors don't know MSK as much as they, they should. And our MSK docs don't know spinal cord as well as much as they should, because, you know, I'm doing a research project on spinal cord injured patients who are wheelchair dependent and ro have rotator cuff pathology. The rotator cuff, the shoulders of those uh, patients, uh, their incidence is off the charts. It's much higher than the general population. And when they can't exercise, because they're using their arms like we use our legs, then they get obese, they get diabetes, they get hypertension, they get coronary artery disease, and they die at an earlier age than they probably should. So these ramifications have multiple, you might say, ah, it's just a shoulder big deal. No, that downstream ramification of that shoulder problem in a spinal cord patient, and they really are not surgical candidates, right? Because you can't immobilize a spinal cord injured patient and expect them to transfer, expect them to wheel their chair and, and do everyday activities, uh, unless you want to take them out of commission for a couple of months. So those are prime candidates. And our early work has shown amazing benefits in terms of using, in this case, adipose tissue to assist with reducing pain and improving function. Their MRIs, we've followed them. There's some improvement, but it's not the holy grail. The holy grail is getting them to be active and exercising, doing their ADLs, and hopefully continuing to exercise. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Malanga. I mean, that's what makes our, our specialty so beautiful. Our primary specialty, you know, it, it goes back to the two things that you mentioned, two Fs. It's uh, feel and function, right? And and ultimately, what you're talking about is quality of life. And, and that's all patients care about. Uh, patients don't care that they have a white blood cell count of 30 if they feel amazing. I mean, I, I, that's a little extreme. And, and we, but you know, they don't care about the numbers. They don't care about the, what the MRI shows if they feel great. You know, they don't care about what the ultrasound shows. So, so I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's so important for us to understand the basics so we can be even better down the road, understanding this stuff, particularly about anatomy and biomechanics, biomechanics. And that's going to make you better in understanding everything that you mentioned over the last 90 minutes or so. And, and, you know, if, if residents will ask, I know Darsha's already doing this is I would tell them, I would point them to your podcast. Like you've already mentioned, the Malanga talks I've already learned in the, 
early stages of your podcast so much from this, you know, things that I've forgotten, even just you, you recently went over, not recently, but earlier on talked about doing a proper knee exam, you know, from top to bottom with your fellow. And I think you had one of the medical students as well. And that was so good. There was things that I'd forgotten about and, and it's good refresher and, and things that I'm still learning. And, and I love that. So I would definitely, we're going to link to that here. And so people can, can use that and, and they're bite-sized information. So that's really awesome. Yeah. One last question I want to ask you is, you know, one of our, our things that we mentioned earlier is we're focusing on, you know, this is a, a disease care model and, and Darsh and I are much more interested in, you know, people being healthy and healthier than where they are and trying to optimize their health. So, you know, for us, we're looking to add the health back to healthcare. And so the question for you is, how do you think we can do that? And, and what does that mean to you? Well, I appreciate you guys are, are, are approaching that. And uh, I had a student who visited with um, a local person and they told me some of the stories of the interactions with patients. And I basically said, I don't see anything that looks like health in those interactions. And I actually don't see anything that looks like caring. So I don't know, we use this term healthcare and it's get thrown around by insurance companies and by politicians. I don't think they know what they're talking about, right? We're talking about a, for most of this, is a disease management, um, money expenditure type of economic model. It, it has nothing to do, uh, most of the things I see really is not really healthy and is not really caring. So um, I think, you know, the right approach is what you're looking at. Um, and if I was running the country, I would first overhaul our entire um, farming, you know, food sources, all that stuff. I would make such healthy food so inexpensive, right? If you ever go to a, a supermarket and you walk down the aisles and you look at, number one, it's overwhelming to me how much food that we have available. It's almost like, God, do we ever appreciate like your capability of going into a store and being able to get all this stuff. And then you walk down like the aisles and they're so colorful and attractive. They're so inexpensive and they taste so good. How are we going to get people to not eat that stuff? It's so good, uh, but it's so bad, right? It's like crack cocaine. We, we, <laughs> So if we could find ways, right, to let people know, like, there's some really great stuff that tastes really good and it's so good for you. And we've made it so inexpensive for you to get, so easy for you to get. Wow. We would, you know, the, then you start the train from the beginning to go in the right direction. Once you have that train or that boat pointing in the right direction, and then you're going to try to steer it back when somebody is 40 and or 50 and they're 30 pounds overweight and their microbiome is a disaster and they're not sleeping and they're stressed. And you're going to say, all right, now we're going to treat you with a medicine for your lipids. And we're going to treat you for medicine for your hypertension. And then we're going to treat you for your reflux. And wow, what a disaster that is. Right? So, I mean, so if you spent all this money up front, you could see the cost savings that could be sitting there at the end. I think actually like companies that like Amazon, who, you know, who also owns Whole Foods and who also insure about a half a million of their own employees, they're going to force the issue. They're going to force this to be, they're going to force medicine to be something else, just like they forced 
um, you know, consumer, you know, buying of products, you know, you don't have a Sears anymore because Sears just had stuff all over. They didn't care if it was attractive. They didn't care if there was customer service. They didn't care what the cost was. They didn't care if you had an idea, wanted to know whether this was rated highly or not. And so their history. Um, and I think a lot of current healthcare will become history if we push. And, and what does Amazon rely on and what do consumers rely on the most? They rely on data, right? You see that the stars are, they see what you buy. It's all data uh, transactional and they can, they can get you something that's precise to who you are, right? What your likes and dislikes are. That's where we should be moving. Well, Doc, there's absolutely nothing that I could say that's going to, you know, come after that. That's beautifully said. And all I'll say is I, I've never spent any time with you and not learned a great deal of information and just been humbled by there's so much more to learn. And, and you always continue to inspire me. So I just want to thank you for, for being a mentor. And of course, this conversation today has been no exception to, to that learning. And, you know, just thank you for, for being a mentor for me, for my medical school, through my residency. And, and I know you're going to continue to be a mentor for me. So I just want to thank you for coming on today and, and for everything you've done. Thank you. Well, yeah, I, I want to thank both of you and all like the students and residents and fellows that I've had the pleasure and honor to be with. It, it is a, truly an honor to be able to do these things. And you help me to be a better person and a better physician. And I learn as much from you as you all learn from me. So it is so exciting to me to see somebody like Altamashin and others who I've seen as a student and as a resident and post-resident and, and then going on to do great things. I mean, that, that gives me great hope when I start, when I get down on the current system. There are people like you and uh, there are lots of uh, folks like you that are just eager to, to have this information. And so if I can just pass on my little bit and you all pass it on, I think we'll, we'll make some changes. Things will get better. Absolutely. Thank you so well, thank much. You. Yeah, no, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Malenga. As Altamash once told me uh, about our paths crossing, I hope ours do as well again in the, in the, in the near future. So I'm just, I'm super excited. You guys, you guys know you're always welcome to come here and I, I hope our paths cross often. Thanks. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks.